All right. I am going to be talking today about my Daily Beast article, which is called Biden has backstabbed rail workers and betrayed union allies. Um, <laughs> of course, anybody who, uh, who knows a little bit about how this works probably knows that uh, writers don't typically write headlines. Uh, I would have left out the part about union allies because that suggests that uh, that Biden was meaningfully allied to the labor movement at uh, at a point uh, which uh, which I obviously would not concede as a premise. But uh, in any case, I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about the article. But ideally, I want to open it up to calls pretty quickly in the uh, in the episode. Uh, room, whatever we're calling this. Uh, I hope that the, uh, the audio sort of holds up throughout uh, the episode. I should say if it doesn't, the reason is that I am recording this uh, from my car. Uh, I am in the middle of driving through Alabama uh, as part of the drive from Atlanta to New Orleans which is part of a much larger road trip for the next several days. Um, so it's, you know, I, I think if I'm going to do it, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to do this for the road. I really did want to, uh, I really did want to do a room on this particular development. But if, uh, if my voice cuts out at any point or there's a point where the audio isn't good, uh, just know that that is why. And I should also say, anybody who wants to get in the queue to to call in, just you know, just go for it at any point. And like I said, I'll, I'll start uh, I'll start taking callers pretty early in the discussion. So, of course, the um, reason I wrote this article is because of what happened this week. At I have to say, pretty astonishing kind of lightning speed. Uh, this is Congress. They famously can't get anything done, that, uh, that tried to get anything through the House and the Senate and conference, all that stuff, just, just takes forever, right? This is what we're always told. But it turns out that when Capitol's back is against the wall, when uh, the, uh, the owners of society, as George Carlin famously put it in his uh, American Dream rat, if you just uh, search George Carlin American Dream on, uh, on YouTube, you'll find the clip that I'm talking about, and he has that phrase about how, you know, it's a big club and you ain't in it, uh, with the big club has its back up against the wall because there's a danger that the working class is going to actually start to exercise some power and cause some serious economic disruption, in this example, through a rail strike, uh, then... Actually, it turns out that those normally slow-moving gears of government are really, uh, they can really speed up when they have to. Um, and this is, this is one of those times. So this, uh, like, it was earlier this week that Biden uh, released his letter calling on Congress to exercise its power under a really awful pre-New Deal uh, bit of anti-labor legislation, which, of course, the Supreme Court has said is fine uh, because of the Interstate Commerce Clause, allowing it to stop rail strikes. 
Uh, and the legislation passed the House on Wednesday. <laughs> and I was, uh, actually originally I was, uh, I'd said, I told the Daily Beast I'd get the article done on Wednesday afternoon. But then um, the situation was changing so quickly. And they said, well, actually, we're going to run until Friday anyway. So if I wanted, I could wait till early Thursday. And then uh, on Thursday, uh, this was, things were very fluid. But basically, it passed the House on Wednesday. It passed the Senate on Thursday. Um, and uh, that's all she wrote. So... I know a lot of the discussion about this is about this amendment on sick days, and obviously that is a big part of the article, that is something we've been talking about, but what I really want to emphasize is that I think that the attempt to take legislative action on sick days is a little bit of a sideshow. Not that it wouldn't have been good if it happened, of course it would have been good if it happened, it's obscene that these people don't get sick days, and absolutely they should have been given those. Um, but I don't really think that's the main event because I think there's a much bigger thing here that impacts not just rail workers, though of course it certainly impacts them the most, but it impacts the American working class as a whole. And that's the actual invocation of this power to, to stop the strike. And so what the article is ultimately going to be about more than anything is why that matters and why it's so appalling that Biden, certainly, um, uh, you know, whatever he, if you read Bronco Marchetich's book, uh, Yesterday's Man, uh, you'll learn all about Biden's, you know, decades in the Senate cozying up to the banks of the credit card industry. Uh, and so it's, it's you know, maybe not too shocking about Biden, but um, even people you might expect better from the Congress uh, supported this. So. In any case, I'm going to get to all that, but uh, I, want to, I want to back up and start from the beginning and just read the opening of the article. So here's how I start out. Joe Biden has long bragged of being a, quote, pro-labor, unquote, president. A few weeks ago, Democrats told the country that democracy is on the ballot in the midterm elections. And now he and his party are making a mockery of both claims. Biden brokered a deal between the unions and uh, rail companies that was unacceptable to the workers. They voted it down. I'll pause reading here just to say that, you know, you might very well see people on Twitter who are defending Democrats in this one say, well, uh, the majority of the unions uh, that are involved, because, you know, unfortunately they have this ridiculous craft unionism structure where they're, you know, all the workers aren't in one big union together. But uh, the majority of the unions involved actually approved the contract. There were really only a few holdouts, but that is incredibly misleading. If you actually look at the numbers involved, the unions that voted down the contract represent uh, the majority of the unionized workforce in, uh, at these rail companies. Okay, so now... I say in the article, instead of respecting the results of a democratic election, Biden asked Congress to use the power of the federal government to force workers to accept the deal. Workers voted it down. Biden asked the government uh, to impose it against the workers' will. The measure flew through Congress, passing the House on Wednesday and the Senate on Thursday. 
The right to go on strike is a foundational right for workers to free society. If the companies don't want the rail workers to exercise that right, they should offer them a better deal. Instead, our, quote, pro-labor, unquote, president echoing an argument previously made by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and parenthetically here, yes, the Chamber of Commerce you know, called on him to do this before he did it. He did exactly what they asked him to do. Uh, says that the risk of economic disruption is too great to respect the workers' democratic decision. That's obscene. Now, the, ho- the House voted to add an amendment to grant one of the workers' key demands, seven annual sick days, but the amendment failed in the Senate. Perhaps it would have failed even if it had received President Biden's enthusiastic support, but that support was not forthcoming. Echoing what Biden said in his original statement, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre uh, repeated, reiterated uh, after the House vote on the amendment, right, so this is after the House had passed the Senate sick days amendment, that the president, quote, does not support any bill or amendment that will delay getting this bill on his desk by Saturday. And I should say here that um, in uh, in the president's original you know, letter calling on Congress to uh, to stop a potential rail strike, um, and you know, let's not use the sanitized language of you know taking action to avert a rail strike. They're averting it by robbing the workers their absolutely fundamental right to strike um, by by saying no, um, you can no longer exercise that option at least in a legally approved way. Uh, we are going to uh, we are going to impose this deal against the will of your membership that voted it down. Uh, and in that original in that original letter, Biden said, "Well, some may wish to you know amend the deal that was agreed to by companies favorable to labor or management, but not against any of this because not the land." This is disingenuous as fuck. Um, so, and the reason it is, nobody was talking about amending it to be better for the rail companies, thank God. Uh, the only thing anybody was talking about was amending it to add the sick days to the workers' work. Um, as Lynn so commented in the chat, but uh, going, back, uh, to, uh, going back to the article, I say the contract guarantees exactly zero days of sick leave, never mind paid vacation. And some of the companies extremely punitive policies for taking days off for any reason. For example, Jackman's Luke Savage reports that at Warren Buffett's rail company, BNSF, quote, workers are allotted a point balance that diminishes if they're unavailable for work even in cases of illness or emergency, unquote. Workers who reach a zero balance are suspended, and if they then reach it again after that, they are terminated. The human consequences of these policies are grim. One worker giving a testimonial about why he voted no in the proposed contract, Dave Madian said, and I quote, people just want to see their kids, you know, maybe make a few more memories. Holding up pictures of his own son, Manning noted that my kid's grown, and he didn't have a whole lot of memories with him growing up. 
He voted no to give workers whose own children are younger now a chance to do better. As awful as those conditions are, though, the statement, and this is really the key takeaway from all this for me, the statement that a vote to suppress the strike sends to the entire American working class is even more important than that. Even if the sick days amendment had passed the Senate, the key point is that workers are not being allowed to decide for themselves when the contract is acceptable. And without that amendment, the conditions being imposed on the workers are atrocious. It's no surprise that so few of the supposed populists and the MAGA wing of the GOP could bring themselves to vote for an amendment to even add a few sick days. The amendment passed the House over nearly unanimous Republican opposition. Three Republicans voted for it, and 207 voted against it, including some of the Trumpiest Republicans in the House. Matt Gates voted nay. So did Marjorie Taylor Greene. So did the overwhelming majority of the Republicans in the Senate. That should be one more nail in the coffin of the already absurd idea that there's been any sort of meaningful partisan realignment on economic issues. The party of Reagan is not now and never will be, and Ted Cruz's absurd phrase, the party of the working class. But that's to be expected. Getting mad at Republicans for voting against letting the paroles have a few sick days is like getting mad at a dog for chasing squirrels. It's what they are. It's their nature. What's more disturbing than that is that while they soften the blow by voting for the sick day amendment, almost all of the House progressives also voted to stop the rail workers from going on strike. AOC voted yay. So did Ilhan Omar, Jamal Bowman, and Ayanna Presley, the only one of the so-called squad to stick to her democratic socialist principles and vote nay was Michigan's Rashida Tlaib. Uh, Bernie Sanders, to his credit, also voted nay in the Senate. Now, AOC justified her vote as part of a strategy coordinated with union leaders uh, to get through the sick leave amendment, but that's a weak defense, and not just because the idea that the amendment would get 60 votes in the Senate was already pretty dubious. So, in other words, just taking a pause from the article itself, I just want to say this is not the main point of the article, but I do think she deserves to be slapped for this as well as, you know, the rest of the squad of Rashida uh, because the idea that, you know, they even thought it was going to, anybody was going to get to 60 votes in the Senate is obscene. It, it, that's not obscene, that's the wrong word, is is stretches credulity, right? That stretches credulity. Um, and they could have still stuck to their principles and voted no. I mean, this is such an important vote that to say, oh, we're going to do some, you know, three-dimensional chess, high-level thing, you know, that, that's, that justifies it. No, you don't do that on a vote to stop a strike. I'm sorry. You just don't do that as a socialist. Um, I agree with what Kashama Swan said on Twitter that you could just, you know, if they were saying, if like Pelosi was saying, well, you won't get the sick days vote in the House if you don't vote yay on stopping the strike, they could have had a press conference and said and blamed Pelosi for this amendment not happening. Um, and, 
you know, the official, and, you know, they say, well, the derail unions signed off on the strategy. I'm sure they did. I mean, the same union leadership signed off on the original bad contract that got voted down. Um, and again, I, I think the point of principle here is just too important to be sacrificed for a tactical maneuver. And I think Rashida and Bernie did the right thing in voted day. Okay, uh, back to the article. I say the core issue of principle could hardly be more basic. Workers in a capitalist society have very little structural power as individuals. It's far easier for Warren Buffett, for example, to replace any particular worker at his rail company at BNSF than it is for that worker to replace the job. The only way for workers to have a meaningful say in their working conditions under capitalism is through a process of collective action, which is meaningless if they don't have the option of going out on strike until their employers come up with an offer they find acceptable. And, of course, the same power imbalance spills over into the political sphere. If a random rail worker calls their senator, he'll you know, be lucky to get a five-minute conversation with a college intern. If Warren Buffett calls, he'll probably get the senator himself. So it's no surprise that popular opinion tends to count for very little in policy areas where measures to help the working class face stiff resistance from wealthy business owners. Raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, providing universal health insurance, and making it easier to organize a union, to pick three obvious examples, all poll extremely well, but there is a 0.00% chance that any of the above are going to get 60 votes in the Senate anytime soon. And that's why the message Democrats are sending is so dangerous. The only possible avenue for American workers to exert their will in the political process is for organized labor to start throwing around a lot of weight in place. If we have that might be enough to alarm politicians into thinking they have to throw some serious votes to the working class, but it's hard to see what else could get that done, what else could sort of break the current logjam on any kind of positive legislation to help the majority of the public economically. The reason that workers' collective ability to grind the wheels of the economy to a halt is such a potent weapon is precisely because it would, it would lead to massive disruption. In using the power of the state to quash a potential rail strike while assuring workers that, of course, they want them to have more time to spend with their families, Democrats, even in the party's progressive wing, are sending a message not just to the rail workers, but to the entire working class. That message is that Democrats are only pro-labor <coughs> until the point when it causes serious inconvenience, which of course is also the point at which labor can accomplish anything real. They'll express verbal sympathy for the workers' complaint and perhaps even toss them a favorable amendment, but they won't tolerate working people exercising the only real point of power they have in the system. Of course, I end the article by saying... They promise that they will try their very best to improve conditions for the workers through the legislative process, but just wait a few more years. Maybe after the next election, things will be different. Or the election after that. Maybe don't hold your breath. All right. Um, that's the article. Uh, I want um, 
if anybody wants to call in, this is a good time to do that. I could take a couple of calls uh, before I end the uh, end the episode. Um, I want, yeah. Um, So, uh, so yeah, please do call in if you've, if you've got a call, uh, otherwise, um, see there's a lot of activity in the chat that's inside of the car. I can't really look at that too much. Um, but, uh, but in any case, um, I do want to talk just a little bit, I suppose, in, uh, the last few minutes here about, um, about some of the sort of uh, intra-left aspects of this. So the article, of course, the primary focus is on Joe Biden. Uh, this is an article for the mainstream press. It's a, um, you know, this, this, you know, this is not like a, an article that's uh, you know, for some socialist publication where we all take this stuff for granted. I mean, even a lot of the stuff I wrote for Jacobin is with an eye towards, you know, even though, of course, most readers are already going to be leftists, but, you know, sort of pitched at somebody who isn't because, um, because I want people, I want to arm people with arguments they could make when they're talking to their non-socialist friends and family members and coworkers and all that stuff. Uh, but particularly in a case like this, where it's written by, you know, where it's written for the Daily Beast, where the majority of readers uh, are uh, are going to be not people who are you know on the socialist left, um, so you know that's why the focus is on Biden and the mainstream Democrats. Even though I do slam uh, most of the squad a little bit in passing, uh, but of course there is this larger issue you know that you know that comes up within the left about you know how to handle stuff like this, what uh, what lessons. You know, to to draw from it, uh, you know how to how to sort of think about what you might think of as the party question in light of this, which is sort of the question of do you try to you know contest for the Democratic Party ballot line, or, you know, in in, uh, in primaries and win elections that way, like what the, the squad all did. Uh, does stuff like this prove that that's a bad idea? That's that's obviously one very one view that, that some people are going to have. Uh, is it largely a separate question? Uh, well, you know, which is a which is another point of view. I remember uh, Joe Schwartz, uh, who's a. I feel like I haven't seen anything from it over a while. I hope he's. Uh, I hope he's still kicking, but he's uh, a uh, DSA guy. And he's an interesting writer. Um, political science professor, I think. Uh, and uh, he wrote a book called The Permanence of the Political. And, you know, I saw, you know, I, I saw him give a talk once uh, in, uh, in New Jersey where I think he, he made some very sharp points about this question, sort of how, um, like, the, the sort of awfulness of Democrats, sometimes even including the more progressive Democrats, sort of relates to this, this question of how the left should think about political parties. And, uh, you know, the point that he made, which I think is, is very good, is that, look, I mean, you don't want to 
over fetishize the the party issue too much because after all the same neoliberal drift that we got in the U.S. you know within the Democrats also happened with um, you know various labor and socialist parties that did have their own independent ballot lines in other countries. Uh, the sort of larger political conditions are a somewhat separate issue from uh, this you know from like which ballot line uh, you're uh, you're using to elect your candidates and, you know, what the sort of branding is and all that stuff, which is not to say those things aren't important. Uh, they are important, uh, but uh, but maybe they're not really of you know, decisive importance. And certainly, uh, you know, there are many cases of socialist representatives in parliaments and congresses around the world uh, casting, you know, casting votes uh, that, uh, you know, casting votes that conflict with socialist principles in, uh, in situations where you do have, you know, your own completely separate political party. Um, so, you know, maybe we shouldn't conflate those two issues. Now, the really larger question is, yeah, okay, but whether they're on the sort of democratic ballot line or they're in their own independent thing, and ultimately I do think it would be better if they were their own independent thing. Um, I think that, uh, I think that as a sort of long-term thing, you know, that I think they would be somewhat insulated from some of the levers of pressure and control on them if they were, although in a parliamentary system, they'd probably still be in some kind of block or uh, alliance, because that's usually how those systems work uh, with the more moderate forces. Uh, but Uh, but whether it's its own independent thing or not, I think the larger question is, well, do you have a left that's in a position to exert some kind of discipline on uh, on its elected representatives when they don't do what you want them to do, when they don't, you know, they don't sort of stick to the program? Uh, and that's a really hard problem that, like, really bedevils even independent parties, never mind, you know, some sort of loose quasi-party-like formation like DSA that is lucky if some of these people will, you know, keep paying them dues, but they might not even bother to do that, you know, because they don't get that much out of the relationship. And, you know, DSA not knocking on doors or whatever isn't, uh, you know, isn't very potent, a very potent threat. Um, so, yeah, I, have a, uh, I think that it's a huge problem. I mean, I think that, like, you know, I could talk about the party question. I see Stravis in the collar queue, and I suspect that's what he wants to address. But in the... Um, but I think as a semi-separate question, I think that the real issue here is just right now you only have a few of these people and, you know, they're not in a position to throw much weight around for themselves. And so there's all this pressure exerted by them, on them by uh, Democratic to exert competing pressure. And, you know, I, I, I think that under those conditions, the idea these people are going to cave to Democratic leadership quite often is unfortunately very unsurprising. Um, and, you know, until there's a structural solution to this, I mean, there's you know, DSA, consensual people, expelling people, whatever, I'm not necessarily against any of that. But uh, that's not going to solve the larger. That's not going to solve the larger problem. You know, this. You know, 
that you're either just not going to have people in Congress or when you do, they're going to they're gonna cave like this. But I think the one thing we can do, I mean, as sort of says, uh, it's not for that I made. I think the, the beginning of wisdom is at least being honest at it. Because if you accept their excuses when they say, oh, I was playing three-dimensional chess uh, in order to, uh, you know, because I had to, and the, the union said it was okay, and, you know, we had to do that so we could, you know, we could get this other amendment in and all that stuff. Like, look, why make, why make their job of covering, of covering their asses any easier? By uh, by by accepting those excuses, I don't think you should. I think you should. I, I think you know. I think you should say, you know, sort of forthrightly, no. You know, they, they dropped the ball on this one. They caved, and they caved on something that's important to them. That you know, frankly, they deserve all the shit they're. But I'm going to take Strong's call. Hey. Um... I just wanted to one second. Somehow I uh, got muted. Um, I wanted to ask what you thought of like the prospect of something like a second attempt at the 1990s Labor Party, that kind of method of bringing together a potential um Uh, option as opposed to the Democrats or Republicans, something outside the duopoly, if you thought that that might be the way to handle something like that. I have some skepticism about it, but yeah. I see what you thought. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to think that that's, that you can do it with just uh, labor union confederation, but yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, like the nineties labor Mizaki uh, never, you know, never really achieved liftoff because even those unions who were involved in it, which is a, my understanding is like it was a pretty small minority of the labor movement as a whole. I think there was the longshoremen that was the big one. Uh, Mizaki himself was the like, this oil and gas workers union. Uh, but even the unions that were involved in it were never really willing to take the leap to uh, run, uh, to like really run very many elections. Like they, I think they're, I think like a handful of people ever really ran on the Labor Party uh, ballot line, uh, maybe, and not major races. And, I mean, I, I don't know this history in detail, so I might be wrong about that, but that's my impression. Be, and like they, sort of self-impose some very strict thresholds for like what it would take uh, for them to, to run a candidate. And, and you can see why, because, um, you know, given the nature of the American electoral system, I mean, it's, it's uh, really almost uniquely hostile to new parties, you know, coming in to, you know, and, and playing a major role because most obviously first past the post. Uh, so, there's no like proportional representation, you know. You just you just don't get the majority in your district. You just lose, uh, or the plurality. Um, and uh, the fact that there's no mechanism for like forming like parliamentary coalitions, you know, if you don't if you don't get the 
uh, majority, the fact uh, that um, in a lot of states, the threshold for gated ballot access is set in a way that, like, it's just absurd. Like, they, it's really easy to keep ballot access if you already have it. So they grandfather in the existing parties, but um, but they, they make it really difficult for, for new parties, even the commission on presidential debates, the way they set that up. It's all set up uh, to sort of rig the system against uh, against those against new entrants. And, uh, and also, of course, even if there was buy-in for the entire labor movement, which there never was anything close to it, you know, with the 90s Labor Party, uh, unfortunately, we're at a starting point right now where only a very small minority of the overall private sector union for your workforce, uh, I mean, even the public sector, but especially the private sector workforce, is unionized. I mean, something like 6.7% of the private sector workforce is unionized. So, um, so the obvious, the obvious worry, and this is not just a matter of union bureaucrats being sellouts or whatever. I mean, this is like a real worry is not only are you not going to win, but you're going to, you know, you're going to be in a situation where the, the greater, the greater evil wins. And, you know, as, as, uh, as much as this week is a vivid reminder that it was actually company Joe and, uh, and they're not to be trusted. Uh, it is actually true that, you know, that, uh, that Republicans do appoint much worse, you know, people to the National Labor Relations Board, etc. that the conditions for organizing new unions are much worse with Republicans in power, just because even though Republicans or Democrats are both ruling class parties, you know, they're pursuing different strategies. Um, so what does all that mean? Does that mean that we just can't ever have another, another party? I really hope not. But I guess the one thing I would caution against here is voluntarism, that I don't think we can just will a new party into existence by the left, which which makes up a tiny fraction of the population, uh, doing, you know, just sort of deciding we're going to start a new one, just doing it like the scene of Jerry Maguire, you know, who's with me? Uh, and then it turns out nobody is, or there's the one person who is. Um, and, you know, like I, I would point to the example of like Ralph Nader in 2000, who uh, was who was an immensely popular figure, actually, before he went out for president. There's some polls that show that, uh, you know, he would have actually been the first choice of majority. And he got three percent and became totally reviled, uh, a totally reviled figure for, uh, you know, his. Well, I think being very unfairly blamed, but being blamed uh, for Al Gore losing or supposedly losing to George W. Bush. Okay, so that's all the bad part. Uh, and I wrote a really good article about this um, years uh, uh, Seth, Seth Ackerman wrote a really good article about this uh, years and years ago. Jackman I think it was called a party of a new type or something, but it was getting into all of these structural impediments. Now, okay, that's the bad part, but I do want to at least briefly address a more optimistic note because I don't want to just leave it there. That's incredibly depressing. Uh, does that mean we could not have a new party in the long term? Not necessarily, no. I don't think the left can just will a new party into existence by wanting it hard enough, but I think it is possible that we could get one. I just think that 
if it happened, I mean, I think what we'd have to look to is the only is the only successful example in all of American history of a successful third party emerging, which is the original Republicans under Abraham Lincoln. Um, as and I think it's worth noting that the way that that happened wasn't through like anti-slavery forces just uh, when they were still very marginal just declaring themselves a new party and starting with 3% of the vote and gradually working their way up to Lincoln winning a national presidential election. The way it happened was that essentially one of the existing parties, the Whigs, collapsed and their uh, anti-slavery went more or less became the Republican Party. So it emerged as a mass party. It was always a mass party. It was never a marginal party that became one. So I think that if we did have a new party, I think it would have to emerge organically in the same way the Republicans did. Um, and it's it's really hard to force something like that, although I think just sort of building up the uh, left forces uh, wherever they're to be found and building up the union movement, building up the, you know, those, uh, those left politicians who are worth supporting, uh, which is a much shorter list uh, from my perspective uh, this week. Uh, you know, within, uh, you know, who within Democratic Party ballot lines, whatever, I think that's, I think the emergence of a new party is, is just one of the possible outcomes of that, that historical process. But I don't think it's something we can just, we can just force it to existence. So that would be my, um, I do want to get, well, uh, oh yeah, yeah, please. Um, I wanted to suggest this. So I think that it would have to come out of non-business unionism. And it seems like a bunch of genuinely radical unions that at least don't have a history of business unionism is sprouting up all around. I don't know if you saw about the USSW that just formed recently. And um, I also think that we have to consider like um, tenants, organizations, um, housing justice groups, and um, how they might contribute to something like that as well, because to me it seems even more than the healthcare problem, the affordable housing problem is driving people nuts and making people realize how horribly unjust this system is. I mean, in the town that I live in, which is not, at least for its um, non you know, recent arrival of gentrified population is not a wealthy town, and yet to rent the most pestilent, roach-infested, you know, whatever you want to call it, hovel in a remote section of town that is not well-serviced by public transit, you have to make $20 an hour to qualify. I mean, that full-time, I mean, that I think that's pretty illustrative, and I think that if you can locally capitalize on situations like that and push public housing, that yeah. if you do that and you get a thousand groups like that and a thousand towns and cities, and it's not just labor unionism, then you might be able to federate into something. I, but I, I think it has to come outside of the, I hate saying it, old AFL-CIO unions, unless there's some big democratization of these institutions. I just don't see it happening. So that's all I have. On that part, um, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, I think certainly like the, 
the Amazon Union um, is obviously a huge, I mean, it's you know, one or two warehouses, but it's still a hugely encouraging development. Um, and, and that is like a real, that is like a radical union that's outside of existing structures. And even though it's not an independent union, it's, it's affiliated with the, uh, the SEIU, so it's not the AFL-CIO, but it's a similar, you know, kind of established union structure. I still think the Starbucks stuff uh, is, uh, is very encouraging the same way. Uh, I actually wasn't sure I was familiar with the, the example that you just cited. Um, it's the Southern Service Workers Union. It's real. Okay. Last couple of weeks, yeah. Oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I like if you had, um, yeah. I mean, basically, if you if you were in a position where you had like a you know kind of CIO part two, uh, where there was a uh, uh, there was a, there was a wave of sort of formation of much better unions, um, and then. Elements of maybe of things that had been affiliated with this AFL-CIO sort of went towards it, etc. Then, yeah, I mean, God knows what could be possible out of that. I certainly agree that other kinds of like bottom-up civil society formation, like tenants associations, are also are, are you know are also sort of places where the working class could organize itself. Although I do still think the workplace is that kind of central site of you know structural power uh, is is the most promising. Avenue, but but that too, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I think that if you had these sort of, you know, it's very hard to sort of to sort of envision the exact scenario because we're we're just talking about stuff that hasn't happened yet. Like you and I could kind of try to dream something up, but I mean, it probably wouldn't it wouldn't resemble quite what would actually happen. But I mean, I think that in order to either have a better left pole of attack attraction within, you know, that would sort of be within Democratic Party structures would be better something that was independent or whatever weird combination happened. I don't think any of those things could really happen without just, like, much more grassroots organization of the, the class, because, you know, this is, you know, there, are, there is a reason there are not a lot of examples of uh, successful Socialist movements were even successful within sort of tepid social democratic terms. Never mind if they go beyond that. That uh, that don't have an organized working class as the base. But uh, I want to take uh, Schnarf uh, before we uh, before we go for uh, for today. So uh, Schnarf, what is on your mind? Hey, what's up? Uh, I. I... What's up? I was actually uh, reading something that said the entirety of this, this of what the workers are looking for is about six hundred eighty-eight million dollars. That's really what it comes down to as as a dollar amount. And then the article was talking about how Warren Buffett makes one point one four billion dollars a day, like clockwork. And I and it made me think that I think the the situation that we're dealing with is not, you know, the management of, of these of these railroad companies and their employees. What it is is the employees actually versing the holding company, which is more integrated into global finance and has a way of 
making astronomical amounts of money. So the, the bigger question that I have is this, is that if we as a population just look at this as a static employee versus employer situation, then who's doing the PR job for us not saying that it's Warren Buffett's call and Warren Buffett can solve this with a, you know, with a snap of his fingers? I don't know if you've seen the, the, the cost of Berkshire Hathaway's, uh, I think there's three stocks, it's A and A and a B. Have you seen the cost of that? I mean, these people are making money hand over fist. The accountability of billionaires is zero. And we don't, we don't actually go out our way to say, hey, listen, these are the parasites that are responsible for, for robbing value, one, out of the economy, and two, out of the lives of the people that work for them. I don't know why, why more people on the left haven't pointed their finger at Warren Buffett because he's, he's a part of this. And the way they make money is also a part of this equation. Yeah, well, uh, I will. Uh, I will say at least, uh, at least for myself, I did talk about Warren Buffett extensively in the uh, in the Daily Beast article. I mean, I think that I don't think that the like, you know, something that might be a larger disagreement or certainly this disagreement emphasis, etc. Is I don't think the sort of gap between kind of. Uh, Industrial capital and finance capital, maybe, is is sort of the. Uh, I, I don't think is the the core of the problem. I mean, I think that the I think that the sort of core of the of the issue is is about capital. But but do you know case. why I think the do you do you want to know why I think the it is the core of the problem? Yep. Because yep. so so two things. The cost for Berkshire Hathaway A is $475,000 for one share. Yeah. That's, that's insane. So here's, here's what I think. I think what, what, what's happened with the financialization of most companies is that they have strategically become more wealthy as a result of things like stock buybacks and, and having financial and real estate and intellectual property holdings. That's where I think the value is being generated and that's leveraged against the productive side of a company, you know, like, like the, like the, the railroads where they're actually doing something. So if you have a way of leveraging that against, against an actual productive side of business, then what's really happening is that workers are losing uh, the the ability to use their labor as a as a as a as a bargaining chip, and I think that's something scary that people don't talk about. I know I know there's a few people that hint to it, but they don't really directly go into it. Like definitely Michael Hudson brings this up, um, but it doesn't really get talked about enough that that our that, that our economy is no longer really focused on production and more pro- focused on more exotic instruments and 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 really the the worst ways of of enriching yourself yeah yeah uh, the first is that um, is that I think that the you know the economy is still ultimately based on on productive labor I mean like just to use a crude analogy I mean that that's what generates the uh, 
the, the pool full of uh, the Scrooge McDuck pool full of cold gold coins, and then all everything else you're talking about is about sort of how the uh, the thieves arrange the booty above the sort of complex and uh, the complex and ever shifting ways in which uh, in which they uh, they can you know use these exotic. Do you trust the Bureau of Labor Statistics? You're still on the fastest route. Uh, they can uh, they can use these exotic arrangements uh, to uh, to to sort of. Uh, arrange the profits among themselves, but ultimately, without uh, you know, without the productive activity, without the labor, none of the rest of the stuff would exist. There's nothing the Bureau of Labor Statistics could say that could contradict that in any way. Well, well what I what I would say is this: is that 23 percent, 23 percent of 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 GDP, whatever is in GDP, is associated with the fire sector. Finance, yeah, insurance, but and real but estate. But that doesn't that doesn't contradict anything that I've said at all. No, it doesn't that's, contradict that. What, what I'm not I'm not contradicting that. What I'm saying is is that in, in in if you look at it, we have removed the actual productive side of our economy for something where it's just turning into into a way of using fictitious commodities like Polani po- points to to cook everything over and over again we're building wealth for the fucking rich and we're <laughs> like absolutely doing yeah, nothing of value as a whole you don't want to go into the you don't want to go into the uh into the reactionary rabbit hole of thinking that the um of thinking that uh the difference between you know productive capital and finance capital is politically significant and that like the productive capitalists aren't so bad because it's really just the the people who are doing this like this this fake stuff that's that's not really you know that's not really fundamentally economically productive you know that that's the real you know that that's the real enemy because because then you're you're reclassifying people as allies who are who are not allies that the uh, uh, because they're uh, you know their their structural interests are counterposed to those of workers in exactly the same way and that's the point about Warren Buffett and all that that uh, that that ultimate labor veto. That the that workers can make the, the gears of the economy stop turning, uh, given organization, militancy, etc., is still every bit as much a structural threat to where Warren Buffett gets his money, no matter how many sort of mathematically complex uh, transformations it goes through, uh, as it is to any other capitalist. I mean, that that's that's a that's a structural problem about capital. Uh, and who owns capital? Whether it's uh, whether BNSF was its own freestanding entity, or whether it's uh, or whether it's owned by a holding company, is ultimately a somewhat separate question from whether whoever is owning it, who by virtue of owning it, is going to have interests that are counterposed to those of the workers, is uh, has to uh, whether that they uh, they have. Uh, whether they have to to give in to workers' demands or whether they can afford to uh, to ignore them, um, that they you know they have been able to make you know again even if we ignore the existence of the holding company even just BNSF as an entity uh, to to make really impressive profits by letting go thirty percent of its workforce and uh, and having everybody who's left uh, not. Um, you know, be on these ridiculous uh, these ridiculous schedules where they have to be available to work work at all times. Your point balance gets lowered. 
uh, for, for missing work for any reason, etc. And the fundamental cause of that problem is not consolidation of capital. I mean, that might exacerbate the problem, but the fundamental problem is not concentration of capital because uh, uh, much smaller employers could still exercise this power. The fundamental problem is the weakness of uh, labor, the lack of any countervailing power uh, to stop that. And it is telling that, dis- that you know, despite everything you're talking about, Warren Buffett still had to worry about the rail workers going on strike. And, you know, and so, you know, he and, uh, he and his, uh, his compatriots still had to get uh, Diamond Joe and the, uh, and, uh, and Congress to, to help stop them, to, to intervene, to, uh, to take away the workers' right to strike because a rail strike would actually have been really bad for them. And I think that should absolutely not get lost in all of this. Okay. Um, I have, uh, through these last few pretty quickly, but uh, we, uh, let's see, next, Ron, hello, can you hear me? I can. Okay, hey, I I think you've covered most of what I wanted to talk about, but uh, a brief comment, and then I'd like to hear your perspective on it. Yep. Um, I remember being a, a fresh college graduate when uh, Reagan had his air air traffic controller Echo, fiasco, yeah. and I and I, I remember the response of the of the folks I was around at the time and the way the press covered it, and uh, it was actually very anti labor. Um, it was. Yeah, Reagan, go kick some ass. This is great. We need to bust up these unions and who are these uppity workers thinking they can demand more money, better better uh, benefits packages and lifestyle and so forth. And that's that's not the way this is being covered now. Admittedly, the coverage is pro-capitalist by its very nature, but there is a different sentiment. I'm, I'm surrounded by a little different group of folks now than I was then as an aspiring aspirant to the middle class. Uh, but uh, the folks I'm around now versus back then have a different take on this railway strike than they did when Reagan did his little thing in, in the early 80s. And um, I think that I, I just feel uh, that there has been a shift in the attitude of the public towards labor rights and uh, also an energy amongst working folks that that wasn't there in the past. So I, I think this may not all be doom and gloom. Um, I think with, if, if they had gotten a few sick days and had approved the contract and Biden had not had to do what he just did here recently, I think this would all just be kind of swept under the rug and yeah, the, there was a threat for a strike and it all happened. I think this could actually be an opportunity. This could be an opportunity not for folks to be demoralized, but to actually get really pissed off and really get motivated and actually strengthen the labor union, uh, labor, labor movement. So uh, just a little different perspective on it, that this is not all bad. I think it's bad for the Democrat Party, but it may actually in the end be good for labor if it serves to, to stimulate 
uh, action and, and organizing. I just wonder what your thoughts were. Yeah, um, I, I will say on the media coverage, I'm probably not quite as optimistic from some of what I've seen. Like there was a montage that was going around of uh, uh, CNN uh, talking heads fretting about how horrible it would be for the economy if, oh, uh, yeah. if it, oh. the rail, rail workers went on strike. Uh, so it's, it's it's definitely being covered predominantly from a pro capitalist fat cat perspective. There's no question about that. Uh, but but it's but my sense is from what I remember back then was uh, who are these uppity uppity air traffic controllers? You know, and and there's a little bit more sympathetic tone amongst the commentators now than there was back then even though they are saying we can't afford this, it's going to damage the economy and so forth. There isn't this sort of anti-rail worker sentiment that I, I sensed back in the day. Okay. Well, I very much hope uh, that you're right about that. And, um, and uh, if on the larger point, I mean, about, you know, whether there's been a shift in sentiment, and I think that almost is true to some extent. Um, yeah. You know, given everything that's happened in the last, you know, the last uh, decade in particular, um, that you know that they're like certainly, um, you know, economic inequality and everything bad that goes with it being sort of something that people could talk about uh, as as a bad thing. Uh, is certainly a much bigger part of American discourse than it was even a decade ago. So, uh, and I, I hope that you're right about the positive long-term effects of people being pissed off about this. Although I, I, I still think this is, uh, you know, this, this is pretty grim in the short term. But yeah. I want to go on uh, to uh, to Dane. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Hello. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm from the, uh, greetings from the Philippines. Uh, I just want to ask if you if you saw that breaking point segment that uh, where Grim where where Grim was talking about the boat on the force forcing the contract, and he's talking about uh, how how the how AOC or the the uh, how AOC and her colleagues voted no, and it might be for the better because uh, if if because the uh, the Democrats and the the vote already has a um, overwhelming vote on the other side, and if they sent if it pushed through with them being railroaded or uh, trampled on. Uh, they won't have any leverage afterwards when it comes to neg- renegotiation with Biden. What do you think about that? Is that, that does that make sense? Or I think uh, I just thought that it would be it would make more sense to have some opposition on the other side rather than somewhat almost unanimous voting on the on that part yeah i'm i'm with you on the last point uh now i have seen some of breaking points coverage of this 
all the nonsense to vote. So I haven't seen that segment you're talking about. But um, again, I, I, I just I'm very um, I'm very reluctant to accept the sort of like, well, you needed to do this for the sake of negotiation. Now to you know, there's like the sort of three dimensional chest uh, strategy defenses. I think that there are. I think there are places where um, where nuance could uh, could become a bad thing, and I think with I think with something as kind of momentous in terms of the signal sense, the working class as a whole is saying that Congress is going to stop you from going out on strike. I think that's one of those places where um, where I think it would I think it would do more good to to just draw a line in the sand and say no, uh, you're not going to do that. So that is my thought. Uh, but I think probably our last caller. Um, we have in, okay, uh, thank the great white, uh, great uh, yeah, thank you, great white north, Gareth. Uh, Colin has been a little bit funky. Gareth, are you there? I keep hitting make next caller, <laughs> and, and, uh, and I don't think it's working. I don't know what's going on. I think Colin might be having a little bit of a glitch today. Um, I would actually be very interested to hear from Gareth on this one, but um, I think we, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know why I won't move through the queue the way it's supposed to, but uh, in any case, I really do appreciate Everybody who uh, who called in, I'm going to try one more time in case we can get Gareth. Make next caller. Testing. No. Okay. That's not going to work. Okay. Uh, I really appreciate all the calls. Sorry about the technical difficulties with uh, with Colin. Um, But we will, I'm sure, go back and talk about this again. uh, If you, uh, what, you know, anybody, whether you, managed to get through today or not, who has more to say about this, uh, you will have an opportunity to say it in a future episode very, very soon, I hope. Uh, and I will uh, see everybody then. Uh, thank you, everybody uh, listening. Uh, 